0: Good morning, um, so my laptop is out of commission currently, so I've got some handwritten notes and uh, the verses will not be on the board, so I'll try to say where we're at in Scripture very clearly for everybody to give everybody time to uh, to get there. Um, you probably got the impression from the Scripture reading, um, this morning's focus for the lesson is extremely uncomfortable. And very grievous. Um, and for those of you who are visiting here, um, sometimes you visit with a local church, and there may be things that are very uncomfortable that are being taken care of at the time when when you're visiting with them. And this is this is one of those times for us. Um, there's a couple who placed membership here. about two years ago, and in May there was a conversation with the husband in the relationship and he had mentioned, uh, this is the Castleberries, um, that they've abandoned their faith, that they do not want to be reached, and uh, so this morning there's some letters that we've chosen to write to Daniel and Michelle individually as an appeal, um, as an appeal to, uh, to them to urge them to be open to changing their mind and working with us to consider these things more. Um, so I'll read, I'll read those letters, or they're, they're identical except by, by name and gender, so I'll read one, one letter um, at the end of the lesson. Um, but I want to study out why we're doing what we're doing and the importance of what we're doing. Just generally in our relationship with God, with our relationship with one another as we work together in Christ, sometimes there are extremely difficult things that we're called to do with each other, and not always of this this nature. But that doesn't mean it's not beautiful, that it's not good, that it's not praiseworthy and pure. It doesn't mean that it doesn't lead to joy and goodness, that it doesn't increase faith. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to embrace and a time to shut embracing. A time to, sh- to search and a time to give up is lost. And Wisdom sees the beauty of each thing in its time. I want to start with what we're not talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll get to 1 uh, Corinthians 5 in a moment. But I think it's important in a lesson like this that we understand very clearly what kind of situations we are talking about and what the current situation is so that we're not misunderstanding um, what, what we're talking about doing uh, this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 gives some instructions about how to handle different situations with brethren, different conditions. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. And just kind of outright, we're not talking about any of the conditions in this verse. 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 5 14. <laughs> We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So, the first thing is that be patient for everyone it can make things very challenging sometimes in really trying to get to a conclusion and where somebody really is in their faith. But we're not talking about somebody who's weak, right? We're not talking about somebody who's even struggling with sin, but they just lack strength, they lack understanding, they need help and encouragement and teaching and patience and long-suffering. They need to be encouraged with great hope and great diligence. They're open about talking about the issues in their life, they're open to being worked with and studying through things. And so we're not talking about somebody who is simply weak, who needs patience, and who needs help from their brethren. That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about when somebody is faint-hearted and they need encouragement. You know, that might be somebody where they've suffered some tragedy in their life or some great loss, or just experiencing some trouble that is overbearing them. They're stretched too thin, and they just really need the understanding and compassion and encouragement of their brethren, and they as well need great patience in being worked with. Both of those conditions, by the way, you may not see somebody at an assembly sometimes when they're struggling with those things. So we're not just talking about, well, we didn't see somebody at the assembly for a little while, so, you know, they must be living in sin. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being diligent to understand where somebody is, we are trying to be as patient as we possibly can. We're trying to extend as much of a benefit of a doubt as we possibly can. If if encouragement is the answer, we want to give it. If somebody will allow us to have a relationship with them, even if we don't see them publicly for a long time, we're willing to accept that, we're willing to work with them. That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about admonishing the unruly necessarily. We'll see in just a moment in Second, in Second Thessalonians and in other places like First Corinthians, we get to a place where admonishment is not the answer, when words are no longer the answer, where just speaking a rebuke or speaking an admonition is clearly not producing repentance or any kind of change. And so although we need to admonish the unruly, that somebody needs to be clearly told the direction you're going is leading to hell. And you need to turn around right now, and you need to understand where you're going. That is not necessarily what we're talking about this morning. So what are we talking about? Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So this may just be one page over in your Bibles. Look at verse 6, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Look just a little bit further, verses 14 and 15. Same chapter, verses 14 and 15. And again, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So this, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not admonish him as an enemy or do not regard him as an, as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. So I don't think the answer to what is instructed in verse 14 is they read the letter and then they give kind of a cross glance at the brother and sister that you know, does not seem to be falling in line and then they just like pronounce disassociation. You know, verse 15, this person needs to be worked with. So even if there was somebody in this church who had not previously been obedient to these instructions, here now was their, was their chance. And the brethren are being charged. You work with that person. You admonish them as a brother. You don't just throw away the relationship presumptuously or impatiently. Try to work with them. If they need to be admonished, admonish them. And recognize this is about trying to preserve the relationship that we have in Christ with one another, strive to preserve it at all costs. But, in verse 14, there is a conclusive point where if there is an unwillingness to obey instructions that are given by God, the command is to take special note and turn away from that person. So this is beyond admonition, is what we're talking about. So, this first principle, what we are talking about, when somebody refuses to obey God's instructions... They've been admonished, they've been encouraged, there's been patience, and there is a clear refusal to obey what God has instructed. That's what we're talking about. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's going to be four passages I'll look at, and then we'll go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and for now, I just want to look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. And again, we'll come back here, kind of work through the chapter a little bit. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So very similar to what was said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If somebody is choosing to live in sin, Again, it's been exposed, it's, it's clear, and they're choosing to turn away from God. They're choosing to turn away from their brethren's admonition or rebuke, and they're choosing, this is the life that I want. I want to turn away from God and live in sin. That's what we're talking about. Turn to Romans chapter 16. This may just be a few pages back in your Bible. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Romans 16:17 and 18. I'll give you a, just a few seconds to turn there. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. So it says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The third thing that we're talking about is if somebody is causing discord and division among a local church, we're told that we need to be aware of that and turn away from people like that. And again, not presumptuously, not not from a lack of patience, not from a lack of admonition or encouragement, But there is always, in patience, there is always a point where the will becomes crystal clear and where someone's will stands. And the instruction here is clear. Again, verse 17. If somebody is causing dissensions and hindrances, turn away from them. So again, if somebody was causing divisions in this church and the brethren were talking to them and trying to work with them and they were refusing to listen... The instruction is there's a point where that person needs to be turned away from. And just, I don't know, to maybe paint it more realistically, we're going to look at one more passage. I have met brethren who fit completely every category we're looking at here, every single one. I've met brethren who unrepentantly cause divisions in a local church. And just like it says here, they'll have smooth and flattering speech. had a conversation one time with somebody who was not a member of a local church that I was with, And they studied with me and somebody else about something that seemed like it was causing them to not want to be a part of the group. And they brought something else up and they said, now, don't tell brother so-and-so that we're studying this now. He won't like that if he knows we're talking about this. And there, right there's your red flag. Because he's saying, we're going to keep this a secret and we're going to have this conversation and we're going to cause some discord here between this, this brother. So... Again just like it says in verse 18 they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You know there's a reality that we do need to have a humble sense of trust in one another that's a part of our relationship together but not at the expense of being aware of Satan's schemes and how he can use our relationships to cause division. And finally Matthew 18 Matthew chapter 18 this is the fourth thing that we would be talking about, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 18. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 18. Jesus rarely, if ever beyond this, spoke of practices that a local church would be instructed to practice. And this makes this very unique that Jesus here seems to be looking forward And speaking of a practice of a local church before local churches even really existed. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And I say this to say, I say that to say, that I think enhances the urgency and importance of what Jesus is saying here. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, uh, most other translations say, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The fourth thing we would be talking about in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, We're also talking about if somebody has sinned against a brother or sister, and that's been made known to them, they've they've been talked to about that, and then others come to them to talk to them about that, and if they still refuse to listen, that needs to be brought before the local church and acknowledged publicly. And if even that does not cause this person to humble themselves, be willing to reconcile and make a change, then... In verse 17, they're to be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. And I think the idea is this is very clearly somebody who has separated themselves from God. No misunderstanding here, right? So turn to 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll spend the rest of the lesson there. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. But why and how? Uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Why and how? What are we called to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read through the whole chapter, just make some points, um, some of the instructions that are given here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm just going to read through the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You are boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. So fundamentally, what's being instructed here is a dramatic change in relationship that is openly acknowledged. If you look in verse 4, notice he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled. Notice in verse um, 11, at the end of the verse, not even to eat with such a one. Again, fundamentally, what's being instructed is a dramatic Uncomfortable change in a relationship that is openly acknowledged. And there's really two applications of this. There's a congregational application and an individual application. The same two verses that I just referenced, if you look in verse 4, the congregation needs to openly acknowledge this when they're assembled. But then individuals in verse 11 are to also understand there cannot be normal buddy buddy association anymore, that there is a very uncomfortable change that is very difficult, but that's the point. Nothing about this is meant to be easy or comfortable. Nothing about this is to just be naturally like, well this doesn't this doesn't seem right to me. When God says something like this, it doesn't matter if it seems right to you or not. This is the instruction and there's God's wisdom holding it up, right? So this is what God has instructed, and our task is simply to submit, no matter how difficult and challenging it can be to submit to these instructions. So why are we told to do this? There's two things in this as well. Why? Two reasons. Verse 5. So Paul has already made up his mind on this matter. He says, I've decided to deliver such a one. Notice just the shocking language here. Where is Paul delivering this person? To Satan. For the destruction of his flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the Lord Jesus. This might sound very unusual um, and maybe even cruel. But you know, sometimes the best thing that can happen to a person, the very best thing, is for them to hit rock bottom. And I think that might be a modern way of saying the same thing that Paul is saying is he's being delivered to Satan in the hopes that he will hit rock bottom. And did you know that when somebody turns their back on the Lord, when words no longer have any power to them, when there's no appeal that you can any longer make, the very best thing that can happen to them is that they hit rock bottom. And that if their life will not produce conviction in any way, That's the only thing that's left that God can use to produce a change. And I think many of us have been there. I think many of us in this room have found the Lord when we were at rock bottom and we understand the value of being there. Notice in verses six through eight, it's not just for the individual. Well, before six through eight, I do not want to overlook the end of verse verse five. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is done in the hope that God has designated this instruction to be a part of the process of winning this brother back to the Lord. That the reason for all of this is not just to disassociate and say, we're done with you, but it's to say, we want you back. Come back. And this isn't like what sometimes I think is in other religious circles shunning. So this isn't that somebody can't come to an assembly. It's not that when you see them in the grocery store, you like avoid eye contact and run away. You know, if there is conversation, the conversation is still realizing the most important thing about this relationship right now is that they are separated from the Lord and that they need to understand that there is a problem that needs to be reconciled that's more important than anything else that could be talked about, right? So verses 6 through 8. The second reason is it's for the church. And I think this is a reason that gets very overlooked. Just one thing very quickly. First Thessalonians 5.14 says to be patient with everyone. A lot of times a symptom of somebody wanting to turn away from the Lord and a love for the world is they begin withdrawing their associations with the brethren. And so you see them less and less. They become less and less responsive to texts or calls. They, they are less, le, they're less and less eager to see you or talk with you at all. And in an extending patience, sometimes you, you, don't, you don't want to make an assumption about where somebody is. And so you text and you text and you text and you don't get a response. And sometimes things can take a long time simply because you're wanting to be patient. You are not wanting to assume that this person has turned their back on the Lord just because they're not talking to you. Just because you don't see them face-to-face, that's not an automatic signal that they've abandoned the Lord. And so you're waiting for the opportunity to actually understand where somebody is. And unfortunately, sometimes that means that working through these things can take a very long time. And unfortunately, what that means is oftentimes, in my experience, the person that this would apply to has already disassociated with the brethren for quite some time, is often the case. But I just want to make an appeal that their withdrawal does not exempt the church from this responsibility. So verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And the church needs to understand where we stand in fellowship with those who commit themselves to this family. There needs to be clarity. There needs to be an understanding of where a person is that? And we should be able to talk about those things. Just like what Glenn talked about with Malvin. We haven't seen Malvin for a long time. But Malvin's a new Christian. We're trying to work with him. And, and so there's patience there. But again, there is always a time where the will of a person becomes clear. That's what we're talking about. When the will has become clear. Think about parenting, right? Now, Obviously, I don't have kids, but in hearing from other parents... I've heard the most important aspect of disciplining your child is consistency. That if you say a standard or an expectation, if you set some kind of boundary, that if you do not follow through with that and establish consistency, that you've said this, this is going to be followed through, this is the expectation, and it really is expected. If that expectation is not followed through, how does the child's attitude then change toward the parent? And I understand those things are challenging. I'm not, you know, this is not about judging parents who are struggling with those things. I I realize those are a struggle, and parents I've talked to struggle with those things. But that's what I've heard most often as an observation from parents, that that is the most important thing with discipline, is consistency. And so what happens in a local church if we have all of these instructions, the urgency, the importance of it all, but we never see these things acted on seriously? How does that affect the reverence that is at work in a local church? It's lost. And so for the sake of the church, and even those who are trying to serve God, there needs to be clarity on where people are. And if somebody abandons the Lord, it is important not just for them, but we also need to fear. And in the book of Acts, do you remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were both struck down dead? Great fear came on the church. And you know what followed that? The gospel spread mightily. And the church was unified. And that's the hope in these things is yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's painful, it's grievous. But these are things that must be done for a local church to be what God has called it to be Himself. Right? So it's no longer up to us what our expectations is or our standards. These are things that God has defined that we simply submit to, we follow the lamb wherever he goes. So with that, um, I'd like to read the letter that we have written to Daniel and Michelle and spend some time in prayer after reading the letters. Daniel Castleberry, Dear Brother, First, we are very sorry that we have taken so long to reach out to you since the conversation you had with Bryant and May we are writing to you in the hope that something has changed since then or that you are now open to changing your heart in the matter of your relationship with God. When you moved to Savannah and chose to place membership with the church here, you were entrusting us with the responsibility of helping you in your relationship with God in your accountability to Jesus in faith and as a joint part of this body of Christ. This letter is being written as an appeal to you to beg you to reconsider the conclusions you've come to or to correct us if we have misunderstood or misheard where you are in your relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul wrote, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We know that you have believed the gospel and confessed your faith that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from death three days later according to the scriptures. This confession you have made is based in the fact that Jesus came into the world historically, that he appeared to many witnesses after he rose from the dead, and that the scriptures of the Old Testament give evidence to solidify the claims of these witnesses that Jesus certainly has ascended to heaven to rule until he is sent again to judge the world in righteousness. But we know that the change that has occurred in your convictions is not because of a lack of knowledge in these things. Brother, please consider the warning in Hebrews 1026 31 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you confessed your faith in the fact that Jesus died, arose from the grave, and ascended to heaven, you also confessed your trust in the fact that there will be a judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. As surely as there is eternal life with God, there is eternal condemnation in hell. Brother, we beg you to consider the seriousness of these realities. If you choose to turn away from God, there will be no mercy in the judgment when you stand before God to give him an account of your choices. Please be open to making a change. We love you, and again, we are sorry for how long it has taken for us to reach out to you in this way regarding these things. We beg you to be open to humbling yourself and acknowledging the possibility that your conclusions as they stand now are wrong. God loves you with unfathomable love and mercy. He restored you by the power of his grace when you were baptized, and he can restore you now. He is willing, and we are willing to receive you as well, and we yearn for you. Please remember the simplicity of your faith when you first received the gospel. If we do not hear from you in three weeks, we will take that as an answer to this appeal that you are not willing to change, and this will be acknowledged before the church in hopes that you will one day change and return to God in Christ, your family at Garden City. The letter to Michelle is identical except for name and gender. Let's spend a moment in prayer about these things. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the glory that you've chosen to share with us. For Jesus' death that has humbled us, that has given us new life, a new way of living, a new way of seeing everything. Thank you for the fellowship that we have together that is based in Jesus. Please protect our fellowship in your Son. Please protect us from the leaven of malice and wickedness. Please help us to watch over each other and encourage each other and exhort each other and admonish one another. Help us to be open in our relationships, to be eager in our relationships. Please strengthen us to be bold in our reverence, but also our mercy and grace that we give to each other to help each other. And Father, with this letter, please help Daniel and Michelle to be convicted of where they are Help them to be open to making a change and considering and studying these things better. Please help these things, Father, to be useful for you and just please heal our broken efforts as we struggle so often to know the right time, the right way, Father, of doing what you command. Father, so please heal the the littleness of what we put forward and please help Daniel and Michelle to be saved. Please help them, Father, if even it not be this letter, if just circumstance could bring them back to you, God. Please protect whatever might be in their heart and and cultivate whatever might be in their heart to help them to see with urgency the need to repent. Help us, Father, as well to fear where sin can lead us, how hard-hearted it can make us. Help us to have tender hearts. Help us to have openness to your word. Help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to hate everything that sin does. Help us to hate the works of Satan. Help us to see how diligent Satan is, how subtle his works are. Help us to be aware of the process that leads here, not just a decision, but years of decisions hidden in the heart. Please help us to be serious about our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen. One last scripture. Ephesians chapter 5. And this will be the invitation before our our song before the Lord's Supper. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. We are not the embodiment of, of the beauty of what the church truly is. But there is a day where God will present his church to himself in the way described in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We are stewards of this great responsibility. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.